Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Today, Amy Wright sits down with Cam Franklin, powerhouse vocalist, fashionable frontwoman, and beloved band leader of The Suffers, one of Houston, Texas' greatest contemporary bands. The Suffers just released a new full-length studio album titled It Starts With Love, their third and arguably best LP to date. If you're drawn to the groove like we are, particularly in the R&B and Latin funk stylings, then this is a record you can't overlook. Amy and Cam talk through the inspiration behind and making of It Starts With Love, as well as Cam's background and the history of the Suffers at large. Oh, and I should mention that both Cam and Amy are Geminis, so there's a lot of inspiring communication at work here, as you're about to find out. So let's get to it. From Diddy TV, this is Insights. Okay, so I have to ask you, you know, because you're a woman, you go on the road, you have to have a lot of different outfits, right? Or is it the same outfit every day? I can't do the same outfit every day just for my overall mental health. Um, <laughs> I know that there's some people that do, you know, an outfit or they'll like have a uniform kind of look and that's cool. I'm not that way. Um, I take, I mean, I take my stage clothes, which is already this tour, it's going to be six different options, um, but all very like light. So I'm not having a ton of bags and stuff with me. Um, and I am taking probably like, five outfits that I can interchange for the for the run just so I can feel good and feel like I'm you know changing it up even when I'm not but yeah I I take about two full suitcases on the road with me in addition to another probably suitcase sized amount of stuff that just is like what I need for me to have a good tour so well, listen, I'm not on tour, but I'm in front of the camera and I have the same yeah. problem. You know, I've got to figure out like what my outfit is each day. Yeah. And then the, sh- the shoe problem, I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it's, you know, making sure I got the makeup and the hair stuff as well. <laughs> it's a whole thing, but I'm, I'm grateful to be back doing this and yeah. very happy to get back on the road. Well, you have a new album out. It starts with love and we're going to get to that in just a, just a few um, but I wanted to actually get to know you a little bit better okay. and uh, a little bit about your background and how you got started and all that fun stuff. So where, where actually did you uh, grow up? So I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I've been singing since I was five years old. I started off in the church and then uh, went to school choirs and did competitive choirs all through school. And Um, After I graduated, I really got into singing for all kinds of bands, country bands, uh, punk bands, soul bands, anybody that would let me sit in with them. Basically, I was trying to be on stage. Right. And um, the suffers came a lot later. I want to say probably around when I was 20, 21, maybe 21, 22. I uh, stopped doing music for a little bit because I had a uh, ankle injury and then got Uh, a job at a really good investment bank and thought, all right, well, this is what I'm going to do. And then um, my band, which started in 2011, got a really great opportunity to go and do uh, the late show with David Letterman. And uh, we ended up quitting our jobs and beginning our path as independent musicians then. And that was 2015. And we've been on the road ever since, with the exception of the two years COVID took away from us. And so 
This is the first, uh, you know, tour. This is the first album that we're releasing since uh, all of that went down. And so I'm just very excited, both as a performer and as a creator to just, you know, really be back outside, literally. Well, so was your family musical? Uh, my father uh, sang and DJed and played music instruments and uh, my grandmother sang as well. And so um, I'm the first in my family to do it professionally. Um, but I've always been surrounded by people that can sing in my family, people that uh, just performed just for the sake of loving music. So yeah, there's always been a, um, a big love of all genres, but I mainly grew up listening to a lot of uh, soul and gospel initially. And then as I got older um, and really just started, you know, getting my own friends that went from country to metal to ska to everything. And I just personally was obsessed with music as just an existence. And so anything I could learn or listen to, I would try. Well, what do you think growing up in Houston sort of brought to that eclectic mix of music? Because depending on where you're from, you're kind of a product of what you're listening to in the neighborhood, so to speak. Oh, yeah, definitely. I would say that Houston is a big reason that I write with so much sauce and so much culture. Um, you know, I grew up surrounded by, like, I feel like every nation, every culture is because it's such a diverse place. But um, even in what I do now, I feel like it's very much so reflected. There's always going to be a little bit of Caribbean flair, a little bit of just all Latin music because my band is mostly Hispanic and um, I grew up around that music as well. And so I just the love and respect for all the, the sounds and tones and instrumentation that that's involved with that. Um, I feel like it wouldn't I wouldn't sound the same if I wasn't from Houston and not that it's not for better or worse or anything like that. I just feel like the city has always thrown so much at me. And it's a big reason why like I, I genre hop the way that I do. What's the club scene like in Houston? Are there great venues to to get your start in? And where did you well, kind of start? I feel like Houston is one of these cities that's always uh, reinventing itself for better or worse. And uh, a lot of the clubs that I got my start in unfortunately don't exist anymore. Um, but there are some that are still here. Uh, Continental Club is probably uh, one of the, the big ones that's like mid-sized room, but any genre can play there. Um, I think on my way up, um, that's actually where I first met Brittany from Alabama Shakes just up right after her show. But it's like one of those clubs where they cater to local music, all styles of roots, soul, um, country, everything, right? Uh, and then two doors down from that is the big top, uh, which I also love, even smaller stage. And then next door to that, is the Alley Cat, where my band, The Suffers, had our very first show upstairs back when it was called The Mink. But um, in terms of like the venues that Houston has to offer now, I'd say that right now it's it's been a beautiful time to see it grow, you know, from seeing what they just opened at 713 Music Hall, which is a, uh, I think it's almost a 5,000 cap room. Uh, absolutely beautiful uh, over at uh, Heights Theater, uh, which is the sister venue to the Kessler in Dallas. 
um, it's just been really lovely to see Houston get uh, more spaces so that people that are coming in to visit also have beautiful rooms to play in. Well, you mentioned Brittany Howard from the from the Alabama Shakes. Yes. And uh, so very talented. You, you, right. So was she an influence on you? So you mentioned her. I just didn't know if that oh, was. Oh, I mean, at that point, I would say no, because I like they were just coming up. Um, but now I would say absolutely, you know, just seeing what uh, she's done and how uh, expansive her career has been and how she just also keeps uh, evolving. It's awesome to watch and and see. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much so inspired by her as an artist. She's amazing. So were you there when the when the suppers started? Were you actually? Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh yeah. So uh, this year makes 11 years of us being together. And the band started in 2011. It was uh, started by our, our original bass player and keyboard player, Pat Kelly and Adam Castaneda. And when they first had the idea, it was let's call up a bunch of players that we know are within the scene that uh, they've been trying to play with for a long time. And uh, it originally was like 12 or 13 people at these rehearsals. And it eventually went down to 10 and it was 10 for a couple of years. And then um, I wanna say right around probably the second record, 2018, we went down to eight and um, we've been eight since then, we toured as eight. And you know, it's, it's been a very just beautiful thing to be a part of. Um, definitely the longest band I've ever been in for sure. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful for the lessons and uh, really just happy to be a part of the growth. What were you doing at the time? You weren't a professional musician at, at that point, I guess. You were also working at something else. What were you doing? So I had been a professional musician at one point and then I left. I was working at an investment bank as a gas and power trade analyst and I left uh, after working there for oof, just a little over six years uh, to go and pursue this with the band after we got uh, the Letterman opportunity. And so it's been, you know, seven years of uh, really deeply throwing myself into an industry that you can only be so prepared for when you come into. Um, but additionally, when we came in, we were pretty set on staying independent. Um, and so that came with a whole wealth of education of its own that I knew nothing about uh, to the extent in which I do now. And, you know, again, really just grateful for the lessons and the process and all the people that have helped us along the way, because uh, that's literally how we've been able to continue is just grace and the support of music lovers. When it sounds like Letterman was a big break for you, how did that actually come about? Um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a big break in that uh, we, we'd never done anything like that prior to, for sure. Uh, but it came about when we we went up to New York for a show at CMJ, uh, this festival that used to exist there. And uh, we had played a couple shows that week, but at the last show, one of the producers from the show approached me and said that they were there to watch and that they had heard about us. and. I didn't really take it that seriously and it ended up panning out that he was very serious and 
after a couple months of back and forth, we were able to uh, get on the show right before it went off the air. And um, yeah, that pretty much changed everything because um, at that point, you know, people, a lot of people were still watching TV. I don't know if people still watch and agree that they do, uh, did back then, but it opened a lot of doors. Did it make us rich and famous? Absolutely not. Um, but it definitely started the ignition for a, a very different type of music career. And from there, we ended up doing Kimmel and The Daily Show and a few other, uh, you know, pretty notable TV things. And again, just really continued to see what this industry is as an indie and, you know, where you can really go with it if you just work hard and stay together. Now, was it scary the first time you went on a live television program like that? And that's pretty big. That's not just a live television program. That's pretty big. I wouldn't say it was scary. I definitely will say it was anxiety inducing uh, at points. But in the back of your mind, I think if you really say you want to do this for a living, a part of you trains for that moment in the same way that you know, you may not think about getting any type of Oscar or Grammy or whatever, but those people that finally do get them that first time, at least, you know, I think there's a, a like a just a sense of like, yeah, I always hoped that this would happen, you know, or I thought about this happening. And for some people, it's not like that. But for me, I definitely saw that moment in my mind as a child. I was just almost always waiting for it to happen. And so... I had no idea in what capacity it would happen, but <laughs> I'm really, I'm really happy it happened. And um, yeah, no, it wasn't fear. It was definitely just a little anxiety about like, are we going to start when we start? I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, so when you were when you were a kid and you were watching TV and you saw someone that you said, "I want to be that performer," who was yeah. that? Um, as a kid, it was usually uh, like a Destiny's Child, uh, Janet Jackson, Selena, uh, <laughs> it basically any woman who was just like out here, Dolly Parton, like I just, I, I just was so immersed by women really just getting to do whatever they want. Like I remember when uh, Shania Twain first came out I was just like oh my gosh she's so cool and so like so sexy so beautiful it's like of course I'm gonna like show my skin <laughs> when it's my time like just like really <laughs> really really to think about now like I was obsessed with Brandy and Monica just singers and players that also sang and there were a lot of male groups that I was obsessed with as well but in terms of like the type of career that I saw myself having like those were probably like the biggest influences back then. Well, you know, it's interesting. You not only picked women who had extraordinary voices, but they're also incredible performers. They put on an amazing show. So oh, yeah. that has, has to be in you as well. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that to me has always been a part of it. Like I, everybody approaches this in different ways, but I knew growing up, as soon as I became a musician, I wasn't just going to be a singer or a performer. I knew I wanted to like put on a show and, you know, make it to where when you left, you know, you would still be thinking about the show after you left the experience. But 
there's a lot that goes into creating that type of vibe. So, you know, I'm still working on it. So you kind of alluded to the sound uh, that your band has. There's a lot of Hispanic influences, Latino influences, and um, funk. I heard a lot of funk in there yeah. and soul. Okay. And uh, so how would you sort of describe that sound? Because it is, I think, very unique. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the word gumbo used a lot to compare what we do just in terms of all the different genres that are thrown in. But I'd also like compare it to like um, just painting and, you know, just really knowing what it is that you're going into this with, you know, like even the water behind you, you know, like it's like all of those things have to come together to make that like blue, green, like beautiful color happen. And so it's like, when we're creating, we know what we're doing. We know the foundations of all of these genres that we've taken the time to learn and practice and whatnot. But it's more so like, how can we not so much focus in on just one genre? There's plenty, plenty of artists that do that, right? But it's like, we want you to come to our shows and not really expect anything other than uh, a good time. And so sometimes a good time comes with you know, all kinds of, you know, things thrown into it. We try to, you know, keep it interesting. You know, I think a, a good example of a band that does something comparable is the Avid Brothers. You know, you go to their show, sure, you'll get some of the hits, but they will also throw some like very obscure covers at you and just like go off on their own. And I know they're not from Texas, <laughs> but, but they're just for this example's sake, that's like the type of, of just, genre hopping that I'm talking about. And, you know, because of everything that's in our band, it just, it makes it really easy and fun to kind of go back and forth. So if I'm describing us, I would just describe it as fun and gumbo and uh, just <laughs> malleable music. Well, and as a musician or an artist, there's the musical side of it, but there's the performance side of it. And there are countless bands that, uh, people will come and see every show that they can see just because the experience is so much fun. Yeah. And I was reading a little bit about the suffers and it sounds like you're, you guys are one of those bands that you have a loyal following that come out because the whole atmosphere is super fun and positive and um, up, upbeat and there's dancing and it's all kinds of fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, we try to add some range in there and uh, our audience is, super awesome and loyal and they always I always say they're like our our advice givers because they're always given uh just notes on you know how we can make it more accessible and more fun and um again you know like I I feel like our band is very much so powered by the people as much as it as it is by us and, you know, they've been a big part of our story. Our first record uh, was funded via Kickstarter because <laughs> just because of how our industry existed at the time. And uh, even through all those changes and uh, us continuing to grow, they follow us and um, still support us. We have uh, I, we have a Patreon that we that we run and it's, you know, a small crew of folks, but like they're super awesome and you know, it makes what we do so much more worthwhile when someone that loves and supports us uh, gets like a bit more of an inside scoop 
on uh, what it is that we're doing, but also it encourages us to keep going, knowing that there's a community powered uh, by our sound. What are some of the challenges that you faced as either an artist or in the music business since, since you started the band? Have there been challenges? Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's been a few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every day is a new challenge. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'd say the biggest challenges that, uh, you know, we faced uh, aside from just exploring the realms of just basic financial stability, like a lot of our peers uh, that do what we do, um, you know, we've encountered everything from uh, racism to sexism to classism to uh, just a extreme lacks of equity and it's it's something that I don't think is a permanent uh, thing. And it's something that used to really scare me to talk about when we would experience it. Uh, but I've learned the hard way, but also the historical way that if it doesn't get talked about, people will say that it didn't happen or that it doesn't exist or they have no idea. Uh, you know, they had no idea that people were acting like this or doing these type of nasty things. And so... Um, it's been a long road. I've been assaulted at my shows. I've been cursed out on stage at my shows. I've had people try not to pay. Like, it's just every challenge you can imagine. But, you know, it's at the end of the day, rock and roll is hard, you know. And so uh, I knew that coming into it. But we continue to learn, grow and evolve. You know, we have a song on our new record called Nunya. And there's a verse in it where I talk about how we had $40,000 worth of gear stolen in Dallas back in 2019. And, you know, 2019 wasn't that long ago, uh, but I had someone the other day saying, oh, it's a different place, it's changed. And I'm like, I will continue to go back to Dallas. I will continue to go back to Austin and Asheville and all these other places where we've had to deal with some extreme crime and racism. Um, however, you know, I can keep pushing and the band can keep pushing, but I do hope that society eventually catches up with uh, how they should be treating people and, and and how they should be existing and just simply coexisting um, with folks like us. But uh, more than anything, the challenges, when I think about them now, um, it's just a part of our story at this point. And I know it's only going to get better and it has gotten better already. Um, but, you know, you talk to any band, every band has their own trauma. Wouldn't you say that the negative aspects of, of say, the touring or the experiences you've had are more about an individual than a collective group of people? And it's too bad. It's, it's usually like a few people. Or did you find that there was a whole group of people? It depends on where I'm at. Yeah, um, yeah. It really depends on where I'm at because uh, in the two instances that I was assaulted, uh, I wasn't alone. And the people mm. that were with us just watched and did nothing until I made the request that mm. security come, until I made the request that they be escorted out. And I feel as though if you are silent in the time when someone is being oppressed or violated. Uh, you know, for some, it's a moment of shock. For others, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But 
I wouldn't I wouldn't consider that individuals because it was mm. it was group incidents. Yeah. Um, additionally, um, there was a moment a couple of years back where I was speaking out in Nashville because I had been called uh, the name of another artist almost 37 times during a music festival there. And I had to make it very clear that if I can take the time to learn the difference between John Prine and John Hyatt and Brandy Carlisle and Brandy Clark, that the people I was dealing with in Nashville could take, you know, five minutes to learn the difference between myself and Yola. They could take five minutes to learn the difference between Joy Clark and Amethyst Kia. And it's something where it would be very easy to say, is it an individual or is it a collection? No, it's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. And until it stops happening, I can't say that it's an individual. Um, and until I stop hearing about it from other people who have similar incidents happening to them, I can't say that it's an individual uh, problem. It's a similar thing to you know, the lack of women being played on the radio. It's a similar thing to the lack of women being booked and the lack of people of color being put, booked on major festivals. And, you know, in the past, it would be easy for me to look like I was whining, right? But when you asked me what I used to do, I was an analyst. So when you leave a corporate analyst job and you come into the music industry, they call you stupid and they tell you how uninformed you are. When you leave corporate diversity training and you leave corporate um, uh, EEOC mandatory trainings and you go to an industry where absolutely no one is forced to take that, definitely not annually like I used to working for an international business, they gaslight me and tell me that I'm being sensitive when sometimes the mistreatment that I'm talking about isn't in direction to me. Sometimes it's in regards to the way that some of the Brown members of my band are being uh, treated or spoken to. But I told, I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago and I told Brene Brown that I come from the land of Beyonce and Barbara Jordan, where speaking up and defending others is something that we were raised to do here in Houston. And I'm not sure when, um, you know, just taking a moment to speak up for those that can't do it themselves became uncool or became uh, so difficult to do. But, you know, I'm hoping that I can bring forth a different type of energy and, you know, continue to speak out about not only the things that have happened to me, but about the things that I continue to hear that has happened to other people um, of all, all shades, all sizes, all ages. You know, no one wants to talk about ageism in our community either, but in our music community. But it's like, <laughs> it's an endless problem. So, I mean, we could talk about this all day and just like the inequity that exists. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm sure people could go on about how they've been mistreated. But at the end of the day, this is supposed to be the funnest job in the world, right? But it can't technically be the funnest job in the world until it's fun for everybody, until it's in an equitable space for everybody. And the truth is, is that, that's not an impossible thing to make happen because at the end of the day, there's room for every single artist that's willing to put in the work and effort and, you know, finish their music to exist and thrive. Um, and it's hard for some people to understand that, but that's the truth. <laughs> Otherwise we wouldn't have, you know, music supervisors and, 
program directors and all this stuff and people just need and want music all the time. But anyway, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> well, it does. Uh, how do you stay positive? I stay positive by continuing to know that every day that I'm alive is uh, a win. And every day that I continue to do this is a win. Like I am a walking protest. I am my ancestors' wildest dreams in the way that I live my life. Um, I stay positive by continuing to make art with people that I love the way that I want to, by, you know, doing this job. Like this is my dream job. That's the reason I take it so seriously. It's the reason, you know, because I don't want any woman, any person at all to go through some of the stuff that I had to go through to, you know, get to this place where I could talk about it in a basic conversation, right? But at the same time, um, I feel like by being more realistic, that brings me so much joy because I know if I were a young girl watching this interaction, I'd be like, oh yeah, hold up. Let me make sure I got my <laughs> emotional intelligence together. Oh, let me make sure that I take the time to read a little bit about this industry as I'm learning TikTok, as I'm learning how to sing, as I'm learning, you know, I, I, I find great joy in educating artists on how to make this job a better dream job for them. You know, I interviewed um, a woman, Marissa Moss, mm. who wrote a book. She just came out in the last couple of weeks called Her Country. And it's talking about the inequities in radio play for women and how that actually um, does affect a woman's career. You might enjoy the book. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, buy it as soon as we get off this conversation, Marissa. Mock. You can take it on the road with you and and read a little bit about it. But you probably would have some input for her as an author with your <laughs> uh, with your experiences as well, which sound very similar to a lot of the women Look, that were, I, she interviewed for the book. I love hearing this kind of information, this kind of data, because I mean, what she's sharing is innovative innovative data because yeah. the inequity that exists specifically in country music, a lot of people don't like talking about it because that means that change will have to occur, you know? And to me, especially coming into this industry as a black woman, um, outside of the suffers with my solo stuff, I'm watching what's happening and I see like a long road and path ahead of me, but I love, absolutely love hearing about stuff like this because it means that no matter what I do, it won't be as hard as it was for the woman that came before me. You know, you know, it, it won't be anywhere near as hard. And when I hear about inequities in the radio play, I also think about the young women that might need to hear those voices like that might need. And I don't just mean like, oh, they need to hear from a black woman or they need to hear from a white woman or whatever. I mean, just like hearing a different tone, a different pitch. There's a big difference between a Carrie Underwood and a Winona and, you know, an Emmy Lou and a, a Mickey Guyton. Those are, you know, completely different parts of the choir. And when you're first learning how to sing and you're considering just the, the minor idea of being a star, you know, right? Sometimes it takes someone that has your vocal tone that can encourage you to believe that you belong in a space. But if you're not even hearing that on the radio and all you're hearing is, I'm not gonna shout out to any of those men because whatever, they did they did their hard work to get on the radio. <laughs> However, it's, it's on the program directors and it's on those stations and whoever is 
approving the air, what gets played on the air, to be more mindful that there are a, a generation of, you know, female country stars that are being completely ignored because they're not giving, being given the same amount of inspiration that the generations before them had. Not saying that they were played much more either, but it's like we had a lot more options because they were being given. Yeah, so one of the things I thought was the most interesting premise in this book was that um, how innovative the women had to be to have the same career because of the lack of radio play and that they were successful despite the lack of radio play, which was very, very important to the success of most men's careers. So uh, from that perspective, uh, they were successful. And so there's a story there. Um, but oh, yeah, it I was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the new album. It starts with love. And what does that mean to you? Uh, anything that's worth it. <laughs> anything <laughs> that you really want starts with love. But um, the album, which drops June 3rd, uh, is more so referencing what it takes to show up and be in a band like this every day. Uh, what it takes to finish a, a album like this, to you know do everything that we need to do. And it's one of those things where I've really been learning uh, every day that if I really want this, I gotta love myself first. And then I have to remember that once upon a time you know, I loved what I do more than anything. You know, it's very easy to get to forget what it is that you love and forget that you do what you love for a living when the business side takes over uh, or when life just starts life in really. Um, but I've been just very, very focused around that. And so when you open up our vinyl, uh, it says how to survive as a touring band. And there's this uh, illustrated uh, direction from rest, going home, uh, uh, patience, communication, like things that it really, really takes uh, to, to make just any relationship work, really. But um, yeah, that's, that's what it references. The songs uh, within the album deal with every theme imaginable <laughs> at this point to me from uh, the gender pay gap that we just got through talking about and the lack of inequity within our music industry to um, systemic racism, to uh, just love and relationships, but also um, the impact of not approaching love like in the most healthy and <laughs> well-intended way possible, you know, and just what, what, healthy love looks like versus just, you know, a basic general song about love, which we can also write. Um, but, you know, we're all over the place on this one, but in terms of overall sound and um, continuity of the themes, uh, we're, it's locked in and I'm very proud of what we've done together. And it took a long time, thanks to COVID, but um, I got to work with so many, many, so many amazing people. Uh, we worked out of three different studios over the course of two years and um, shoot, almost 20 something co-writers and tons of musicians on the album. And so I'm just 
really excited for how collaborative of an collaborative or collaborative. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> collaborative of an effort. <laughs> this has been. And, um, you know, I just hope it encourages other musicians to get out there and make cool stuff with their friends. So who produced it? So I'm the executive producer on the album. Mm-hmm. It, uh, we had uh, six other uh, co-producers that we worked with in out of the studios. So Matt Pence uh, and Jason Burt out in Argyle Studios up in Denton. Um, David Boyle out in Austin, Texas. Ryan Chavez out of Houston, Texas. And uh, it was also a co-production effort with every single member of my band. Um, and, you know, it. <laughs> I, I say I'm the executive producer, but it really took, you know, a village like every other album does to get it to the finish line. And um, I appreciate them for their trust. And it was mixed by uh, Adrian Casada from Black Pumas and mastered by our good friend Chris Longwood, who does uh, all the Krungbin records and um, we were just very proud of this effort and <laughs> we hope everybody likes it. So with that many members in the band, how do you work on the songs, say, before you go in the studio? So are they completely arranged before you go in the studio so everyone knows exactly what they're going to do? Or are there surprises when you get to the studio and they're tracking and someone does a different kind of solo, a different kind of part? Both. Mm-hmm. Uh, both. We definitely try to show up as prepared as we can. Some songs, you know, we spend a long time on them. Some songs have taken years of preparation before we got to that final version of it. Um, But some just come like that, you know, super quick. Um, And, you know, when we're in the studio, that doesn't mean like, oh, you have to sing that run exactly that one way or you need it. Unless there is a specific line or like this is how the song goes and the guitar or on the bass, um, there's usually room for freedom and exploration and definitely on the overdub side. Um, For this album, we did a large chunk of it remotely. uh, And that's actually when I stepped in as uh, executive producer because it wasn't a, hey, man, go do your parts or, hey, go record your parts. It was, hey, they say every job trains you for the job that you're going to have. So all those years I (laughs) I spent, you know, executive assisting and working in project management and running teams prepared me to do this, prepared me to work remotely and, you know, provide that uh, support and encouragement to get through each session. But um, I'm, again, so grateful to my bandmates for trusting me um, to get us to the finish line. And also, I'm very grateful for the patience of the people that worked on the mixing side because it it was a lot, like a lot. And well, we made it through. Um, and yeah, I'm just excited for it to be out. I can't imagine with that many tracks how much goes into the mixing side of things. Uh, that has to be a lot. Um and you mentioned Yada Yada. That's, that's, that's one of your singles, right? Yada Yada. And um, I read that you used a box of rocks sort of rumbling into the intro. <laughs> Tell me about that. That was the idea of uh, our producer that we worked with there. I believe Jason, not Jason, actually, Matt Pence uh, had that one. And so Matt's actually a drummer and percussion player. I think he's actually getting ready to go out with Shaky Graves right now. Um, but 
amazing producer and um, it's kind of an example of what you're talking about in terms of like how do these songs come during that session like we came in with um, take me to the good times like ready to go from front to back with don't bother me everything was ready to go except with the exception of this uh, musical brick that we added but for yada yada we had everything except for like a few of the the layers that really needed to like get it there. And so at the beginning, um, they started playing with this box of rocks. It just <laughs> needed some noise. And I kept complaining, like, I need noise, we need noise. And um, when it came to like working on the percussion side, they, they started messing with that. And, with a really cool sound so what you hear as soon as the song starts that chick 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 that's a box of rocks it kind of sounds like a train a little bit but definitely a box of rocks <laughs> well i'm not a percussionist but i might try the rocks <laughs> yeah go ahead and get it <laughs> yeah um so what about uh, don't bother me tell me a little bit about that song uh, Don't Bother Me is the, you know, the complete opposite. It's one of those songs that took years to make it happen. Uh, it was co-written with Johan Karlberg uh, out of Sweden. And he's someone that I danced with and performed with uh, the first time I did this professionally, like, shoot, almost 15 years ago. And uh, when the Suffers did Letterman, um, you know, he had kept up with us and sent me this song idea and you know it just wasn't like the right timing for our last release and uh when we started working for songs that were going to go on this album that was the first one that came to mind for me it was just i don't care what we do as long as don't bother me makes this album and at that time i don't even think it had a title but I, like i just knew it was like funky track number seven or something i forget <laughs> what it was called or something disco but it it was one of those songs where I just, I knew it it was gonna be a part of this record. And so um, to have that video out, to have the song out already, like I'm on a cloud right now. Like I love all the songs on the record, but um, that one took the most out of me in terms of like the amount of time that it took to come into fruition. And so I'm really glad that it's here. and. Um, you know, we're able to pay almost tribute to so many big bands that did that style of music long before we ever got to do it. So, yeah, it's cool to like carry on the tradition. Well, one more I got to mention is Take Me to the Good Times. I just really liked the uh, um, the sound of that song and I got to sneak listen to the album. So um, I loved the whole album, every song. But uh, tell me about Take Me to the Good Times. Yeah, Take Me to the Good Times was uh, co-written with my friends Maria Massa and Steve Watkins out in California. And, you know, it, 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 we didn't go in with it other than just knowing, all right, we wanted to write a song about, uh, I had had this lyric idea about just shouting out to different places, but Steve started playing this uh, really funky keyboard part. And uh, the first thing I that came out was that, I just got to get out most days, you know, and um, I, I just kept repeating that. But um, we got to like a certain point where he just kind of added like a little bit more of a soulful riff and then the song just came out. And so um, Maria ended up coming up with a bridge part that I come to see my people. And yeah, it, it just kind of wrote itself, to be honest. And so I'm very 
um, happy with its existence. I'm happy that uh, Brene Brown brought it on her podcast and made it her theme song for Dare to Lead and that uh, so many people are discovering it now. And yeah, I love singing it. And it's just a real fun song to remind me to book my vacations every time I sing it. <laughs> well, it's an amazing album. It starts with love. I think I just like the concept of that because that is a great place to start always. And we wish you the best with your tour, the album, and uh, and it's just been a pleasure talking to you, Cam. And I wish you the best. Come see us in Memphis. Yes, we are overdue for a Mem- for a Memphis visit, but also <laughs> city visit. So thank y'all so much, and hopefully we'll do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you, Cam, and good luck. And. Uh, Get yourself together for the tour, right? Get those plans packed. I will, I will. Y'all have a good rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. As our friends at KUTX in Austin, Texas so accurately put it, between Cam Franklin's fierce vocals, lyrics grounded in America's afflictions, and Latin-inspired percussion and horns, the unbeatable energy of It Starts With Love absolutely demands a comfy set of dancing shoes. Head over to thesuffers.com today to order your very own copy of It Starts With Love. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Suffers. Spread the word. Let the people know. This is a band that deserves more love. So let's all play our part. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today. And we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. Insights.